Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and today I'm continuing my conversation with Eric Schwartz, the founder, visionary, and executive chairman of Cambridge. So let's jump right back into it. Last time we discussed Eric's career and the history of Cambridge. So let's journey into the personal side of things a little bit today. I'm going to share a little bit of my own story here to get you started because it's a a popular joke, I think, uh, amongst the employees here who know how this all happened. But I'm in my late 20s. I start working with you. By that point, I have migraines and ulcers or pre-ulcers. And my diet consisted of Cheetos, which, by the way, today I still do enjoy, but I don't eat them for lunch every day like I did back then. And Diet Coke, which I absolutely do not consume any longer because of you and you helping me figure out how important diet was. But you would or you did and maybe maybe you don't even remember it because I think sometimes these things just come really natural to you. But you explained to me that I wasn't going to be any good to the company or my family if I didn't start to learn how to take care of myself. So you've obviously lived that yourself. You take care of yourself in a lot of ways. It's an important message, I think, for everyone out in the audience to understand. There was a time in, especially in business and finance, and maybe it still exists today in some channels where if you weren't working 70 hours a week and not taking a break to sleep or eat, then you were going to get fired, right? You really weren't putting in your time. Talk to us about your perspective on that kind of thing. Yeah, well, there's two interesting pieces of that. Certainly some of that came from when I got involved in meditation. And obviously meditation leads to taking care of your overall health and well-being. And so it just became more central to me intellectually because of meditation and the related things like exercise, yoga, getting enough sleep. You know, if you're going to practice meditation and you sleep two hours a night, you're just going to sleep in your meditation. So there were all these things fed back and forth and on an intellectual level and experience level. But interestingly, unlike virtually every person I know in business, I had the ability, I'm sort of a 100-yard sprint guy. I have the ability to work fast and really hard, but after six or eight hours, I'm really tired. And if I had to work 12 hours a day for a week, I may not be able to come in the next week. So my body just never had the endurance that 98% of the population has. So I may have learned how to deal with it by learning meditation and other things that I've done, diet and so on, but it was almost like I had to just to be able to mostly function. And I suspect there might have been a year where I averaged 40 or 45 hours a week, especially when the company just started doubling and it was so exciting. But my average for most of the first, say, 20, 25 years was probably 30, 35 hours a week. Not that I didn't want to be there more, but I started discovering I couldn't, my digestion wouldn't work. I started not sleeping if I worked into the evening. And so I just realized, well, you know, you got to work with what you got. But the interesting thing is, of course, can you take the problem and turn it into an opportunity? And so... Indeed, you are one of the beneficiaries of that, of, okay, you can continue to pound your head against a wall and try to be like everybody else who can work and do work 60, 70, 
some of these tech people start companies, probably work 90, 100. That just wasn't going to happen for me. So I didn't really have a choice but to learn how to self-regulate and take care of myself more. And obviously, you were able to push through it. I remember you would have migraines and no one could tell. So you have a very strong ability to push through it. But I think that eventually you had to start doing some things differently. And I think fortunately you did it young enough that, you know, you weren't already in serious, serious trouble. I mean, when I heard that somebody had migraines and near ulcers at the age you were, I was like, is that even possible? I didn't know you could do that. Well, I discovered a 13-year-old that I taught meditation to who had migraine headaches. And I knew that, wow, this is where I would be if I tried to do what you do, you were doing then, or what she was trying to do. And so anyway, it all sort of came together because it was almost forced on me. I'm glad it was because, for example, now, as most people know, I, I started 13 years ago when my wife had gotten metastasized cancer. I started working less. I started doing three and a half days a week. And now I'm down to about 10, 15, 20 hours a week, which all is very satisfying to me because it gives me time to enjoy other things. You know, a lot of people, you know, they work till they stop and then they start thinking about what their hobbies and what they could enjoy doing are. Well, having seen my wife and at the same time, Jim Guy, our partner, pass away, you know, in their early 60s, Number one, I had to be there for my wife and I wanted to be. But number two, I realized, well, you know, we don't know when the game is over. Why not do continue to do what you love doing, which for me is certain parts of what I do at Cambridge, especially the, the big picture and mentoring people. But at the same time, start enjoying some of the other things and have more of a balance in life. And so not the normal way that many people run companies or how they do or don't retire, but it's really worked for me. So I always, and that's why we, I always encourage people like yourself and our advisors to, you know, get input, see what other people are doing, but then find your own journey. And we're built to try to support that. Great segue into my next question, which I get quite frequently from some of our financial professionals as we talk about the future. You've been, as you just described, for many years, or maybe constantly transitioning yourself into new and different roles, especially at Cambridge, but certainly throughout your life. You counsel many of our financial professionals to think about what their, what their future looks like in terms of succession planning and, and where they want to go and what they want to do, as you just stated, before they need to. I think our listeners would be really intrigued to find out, so you're working 15 or 20 hours a week on Cambridge, with Cambridge, for Cambridge. What are the things that you're passionate about and what's next for you? Well, number one, I spend an hour or two pretty much every day going for a long walk or hike. My only day I don't is Tuesday since we have fairly full agenda of Cambridge things that day. I also do yoga and various kind of specific stretching for certain areas where I've had prior injuries or whatever. And also, although you can't tell, use weights a couple of times a week to try to maintain some muscles left on this little body of mine. We just for the first time ever got a dog. And so we 
I spend time with her and, of course, my wife. And, and then, you know, when there isn't COVID, we like to go out a couple times a week, do something, whether that's eating or something else of entertainment type. And amazingly enough, the day fills up, especially when you're not going at 150% of, of your maximum speed limit. You know, I think we all in business, sometimes when we start retiring, a lot of people say, I can't figure out how I actually had a, had a life while I was doing all that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week of work. But looking back, you realize you squeezed so much stuff out. And so, for example, I now read probably an hour a day on things that are related to Cambridge or the economy or the markets in general, and an hour a day of just pleasure reading, which I never did. I probably did 10 minutes of the two combined for many years. So the time fills up. Right now, it's more limited in how we do things. So like traveling is cut back and so on. But those are the main things. My wife and I are sort of quiet homebody people. We do like to get out in beautiful areas and walk and so on. And we occasionally do vacations, but we're not really, okay, we have the money, let's travel the spend four months traveling to the Orient and hiking across the Himalayas or whatever. You know, we're not, it's just not something that's really important to us. We don't have a bucket list of things we're trying to get done. The people in your personal life are also a part of Cambridge Stronger, Eric. So tell the audience who that special, talented wife, what's her name? My wife's name is Kelly. And what does she enjoy doing while you're working? She's got some other hobbies, right? Oh, yes. Well, she makes my taking care of exercise and like that look like an amateur hour because, again, she walks at least typically an hour and a half a day. She does aerobic activities. She does yoga. Yeah, she could definitely take me if we things got tough. So she do, she's very focused on all that. And then she has a hobby, which is she's a French pastry chef and also artesian bread she's really into. So we have what would be probably a $50,000 commercial bakery in the downstairs of our house in Iowa. In fact, today she's making some bread. Her specialty for a number of years were croissants, where she would get up at 3 in the morning to have croissants out to local stores before 7 o'clock in the morning. And that's after having spent half the prior day, preparing the doughs and all that kind of thing. So she loves doing that because she loves to eat. It's really hard to find a food that she doesn't like. Everything from French fries up to the most exotic French cuisine that's $500 a person or whatever, and she likes it all. Yet, which may explain why she does so much exercise as well. That's great. Outside observation, I think Kelly has a big part of keeping you young. So Cambridge is fortunate that you have her in your life. First time dog owner. What's the dog's name and what kind of dog? Okay. Well, it's true. We had dogs when I was growing up, but I never bonded with them and really cared. Kelly, on the other hand, loves every kind of animal. She had everything from snakes and reptiles and birds and dogs and cats and a horse, everything imaginable as a child growing up, but she hadn't had a dog in 40 years or her own dog. And so for 
long before I got in the picture, she's wanted a dog for a long time. And finally, actually COVID's made it easier to have a dog because she likes to travel. And so it was always a question of what do we do with the dog or that. And so we just got a dog. Her name is Zelda. Her full name, which we is Zelda Cleopatra Schwartz. We just threw in Cleopatra the like a month after we got her just for like, why not, you know, <laughs> the princess. And she is a golden doodle, even though she is white, but that's a cross between a golden retriever and a poodle. And really smart. I mean, I guess the poodle side is supposed to bring the intelligence, but they can be a little bit, like some people would say of French people in general, a little bit their nose up in the air type of thing, but the retriever is very much towards pleasing people and you know want affection and all that. So she's very affectionate and also really smart. Kelly's already got her train rolling over back and forth, standing on her back legs and putting both hands up and all kinds of stuff. And she just learns everything really fast. Like, you know, you take a young dog away from their master or mother and then takes a can often take a long time to get fully integrated, but pretty much done almost right away. Certainly within the first week or two, she was 80% used to us. And it's been a great experience and something, again, something I would never have done, but this is where, you know, when you're 67, can you still be flexible and try something different? And it's great. I think the audience would really appreciate if we spend some time on this episode, perhaps exploring a little bit about our financial professionals. What's it been like to see Cambridge expand in the 40 years that we've been doing this? And any advice you have for our financial professionals as they continue to build their legacy inside of their firms? I'd say, you know, my relationship with financial professionals, it's sort of been interesting because when I only had, we only had 20 or 100 or 200 or even 300 advisors, we pretty much knew all their names and knew their business. In fact, in the early days, I would review every transaction that was on the commission run every two weeks. And so if an advisor did something and made a big commission or whatever, I'd call them up and congratulate them. Or I'd see their fee businesses up because I knew what their everybody's revenues were. And I'd call up and say, hey, you must have gotten some new client. Now, that kind of close relationship is mostly gone at this point. And so on one hand, I miss that, but that's the nature of growing the firm. The same thing with obviously neither you nor I can even know half the employees. I mean, I see people on the street, I'm going, are they still working for us? Or, you know, so it's that I, I sort of miss, it was more like a family when it was smaller and you knew everybody. Now there's a family within the family that we are close with and then not as much. So, so it's a little bit of a, a pinch when I meet somebody at one of our conferences that's a $2 million producer and I didn't even know he was with us. It's, now that doesn't happen that often, but still, in, in, you know, when somebody that's a very significant client and you haven't even met them or ever talked to them, it, it's a little odd. On the other hand, that just goes with getting bigger and certainly our advisors that are growing see the same thing. If they start adding three or four other advisors or support team, their relationship with their client is no longer quite as intimate as it used to be. So it's a trade-off, 
But we certainly know in our industry that at the broker-dealer level, as we've said before, we're down to the top eight or nine or 10 firms that are have any chance of surviving 10, 20 years from now versus hundreds not that long ago. And so we have to do what we have to do while still maintaining those core values that we spoke a lot about last time of, you know, just remembering that we're not going to win based on money. That's to our public company or or private equity-owned competitors, we're going to win because we just treat people better. And so I think the same thing applies to advisors. It's the process with advisors, be they hybrid, all commission, all fee, whatever combination they are, is only the stronger are going to survive. It's not as much in the advisor's face as it is in the broker-dealer space where literally firms doing $100 million businesses are having to, having to sell, not choosing to sell, or ones that are doing 10 or 20 million, even more so. In the advisor side, you can continue as a solo practitioner and even one that's not that large. But 20 years from now, it's clear that that isn't going to be the primary model. Even And even today, many of our advisors that are solos or a, or a two-some are part of a larger organization, even though they're their own separate entity within that. And, the, and thus the term enterprises, where our top 25 firms represent almost half of our total advisors. So this is all changing. Obviously, we're seeing acquisitions in the advisor space. And so more and more advisors are needing to and have already started to think more in terms of an ongoing business that is going to continue after they retire in one shape or another. And even in their life, it could, for example, I'm not retired, but Cambridge can run without me. Most advisors are not at that point, but we've seen some advisors now that are, you know, 55, 60, and they could go away for six months and come back and their business would still be going and probably be doing even better, which is certainly... The first time that happened to me, I went on vacation, came back, and I went, oh, we have more reps than when I left, and I have more money than when I left for on vacation, even though I just spent $10,000 on the vacation. So these are the changes that are happening in our industry, and I certainly encourage advisors to embrace that change. I think a lot of times mistakes are made by business people and people in general, to stay with what they're doing. And if they see trends, sort of see those new changes as bad and trying to stay the way they were because they're used to it. And this is where the term flexibility comes in for me, learning to do things differently, not assuming that you just need to keep it the way it was because you don't really understand the new changes. And that's where bringing in people that are different than you, people that are more systems oriented, if you're more of the rainmaker, like I probably call myself, or bringing in technology people or compliance people to do the things that you don't understand. And then you don't have to be scared and afraid to make the changes. The first time an advisor thinks of hiring a, a person that's, you know, making six figures underneath them, or first time they think of buying another practice, it can be very scary. And certainly we try to provide support at Cambridge for a lot of that. But it's really figuring out, as always, 
what you really want to accomplish and be open to new ideas. Because certainly none of us are doing our business anything vaguely like we did 20 years ago. Well, maybe there's a few. Maybe there's 1% that are out there and still doing that. But you are going to change. The world is going to change. And it's a question of whether you embrace it and try to use those changes for your advantage or you sort of go kicking and screaming along with things because you have to. And certainly, if I look at why we've grown 50 times faster than most of our competitors, that is, you know, if you look at the total growth over the last 20 years, we've run by 98% of our competitors and grown faster than even the ones that are ahead of us. How we did that was really by embracing change early. A lot of that had to do with listening to advisors, but at some point the advisors, you know, can't give us advice on certain things. That's just not their domain. And so it's a combination of listening to advisors, listening to experts in the industry and all that. And I encourage advisors, the advisors that are doing that the most are the ones that are building something that'll probably be here for generations. And to me, that's satisfying. And to, to the extent I can help or Cambridge can help, I'd love to. That's, you know, talking to people that are trying to figure out how to build their business that's what I have the most experience in, building a business. I don't have experience in how to talk to your client, although talking to a client may not be that much different than me talking to an advisor. But I love to do that, and I think Cambridge has realized that helping our advisors build for the future and be flexible and change is perhaps the biggest thing we can do for advisors. So you touched on a, a little bit about change there, and that's a great segue into my next question. So you're known in many circles, almost every circle I can think of, actually, as the architect of the hybrid approach to fee business, fee-focused business. Can you tell the story? I've heard it before. I love it every time I hear it. What inspired you to make that change so many years ago? And what did that do for the financial professionals that were with you or thinking about joining you back then and their businesses? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I've been called a visionary or a architect or a, some expression of the hybrid model or of various other things. And interestingly, I'm actually not that good in inventing new things. What I'm good at is seeing trends in the very early stage and hopping aboard. When we decided to focus more on advisors that were doing a combination of fee and commission, the LPL, for example, already had built a program. It was called SAM. And it, you know, this is like 25 years ago. The only thing about it was, yes, you could do fees on their platform and commissions, but the charge of a advisor-managed portfolio was 25 to 35 basis points, plus your normal payout, plus high ticket charges. And all most of our other competitors were just not allowing it. So there were either the very few firms that were doing it, but charging a super high amount, and then a whole bunch were saying, nope, we're we're a broker-dealer. We do commissions. You can't do that stuff. And then eventually there were some that said, oh, you can do it, but do it over at Schwab and we'll sort of look the other way, which seemed like the worst idea because quite honestly, that means you have the liability for it and you're not being paid for it. It was sort of like, hmm, what's wrong with that picture? But basically, so those models already existed. What I did is look around and say, 
We're not going to say no to it. Advisors want it. We're going to do like LPL did and have a plan to do it. We're going to make it more cost effective. We're going to, this was the equivalent of what we today call CMAP. We're going to charge five or 10 basis points, not 35. And we're going to be able to, you know, and that's our model. So basically I tried to meld the best of what was my competitors were doing who were at that time 100 times our size and figure out how we could beat them. So I didn't really invent it. I just brought it into a reasonable structure where advisors would go to it by making the pricing and all the flexibility there. For example, at LPL, you had to hold the assets with them, which back in those days, they were Pershing. We allowed Pershing and Schwab and TD and all these other places. So we built these things to attract advisors in that space. Because we had long, not to, we had already figured out that when I looked back, you know, when you were joining, which is about when we really built this stuff out, that we could not compete with some, for somebody that had 100% of their money in two or three mutual fund families held direct. Why would anybody come to us when they could do that anywhere else and other firms were 50 or 100 times our size? And then there were always some firms that were desperate and would pay incredibly high payouts where you just couldn't make any money. So the only way we could survive was by being a leader and saying we are the fee experts was the expression that you may remember in our very first ads. And that, again, it was more done on necessity of trying to figure out some space where we might actually be able to survive in spite of having no money and not a lot of other value. So basically, again, I get accused of being <laughs> the leader in the hybrid space, but it was sort of the necessity being the mother of invention. We couldn't recruit advisors that were doing all commissions. So why not say we're going to get, even then, why not say we were the experts in fees, even if only 3% of the people cared, we'd have a 50 or 100% closing rate on those 3% versus having a 1% closing rate on the random people that called. So again, looking back at the time, it was just taking one step in front of each other to try to keep the doors open in the very early stage and seeing this opportunity. Oh, the last five people that called up and wanted flexibility on fees, we recruited all of them. Maybe that should be our model. And certainly advisors hopefully have seen similar things in their business. How did somebody become a specialist in divorce planning? They probably didn't just start out and say, I want to be an expert in divorce planning. They discovered that in that niche, they were good at it and the word got around and they said, well, why don't I make that my main thing? And so I think it's being alert to where opportunities are versus just trying to compete with everybody else head on, especially when they're 10 times your size or 100 times your size. Great advice. Great advice, great perspective. On behalf of all of Cambridge Nation, thank you for letting us be a part of you building something wonderful, which is I, I know what you have tried to do for the 40 years or your entire life and our associates here, and I know all of our financial professionals that have had the opportunity to interact with you uh, certainly know that there is something wonderful and special here. So in, is, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience that we didn't touch on in our two episodes? Well, you know, I think that at this point, looking back at it all, what I'm really thankful for is that it's actually working. 
and that I can still be a part of it on the schedule I want and have seen that you know, the baton has been largely passed to you and some incredible other people here and that the quality of our advisors keeps on going up and it's just fun to have launched this and then see it take on a life of its own, which it has for quite a long time and just keep getting better. Not to say there aren't challenges. I mean, and I'm not even talking about just things like COVID, but just we grow, we bring in some new people, service maybe goes down a little bit, or we don't grow. And then you have to say, what piece is missing again? How do we get it back up? And certainly when, as we do more surveys and things that of advisors, we're learning to catch it faster so it doesn't take two years before you figured out that you have a problem, whatever. So it's just fascinating to continue evolution. And in many ways, it gets easier because of our size and some resources. On the other hand, in many ways, it gets harder with increased regulation. And obviously, we have to do a lot for more for advisors than we did when if you just, you know, basically, if we didn't lose their checks and we paid them regularly, advisors were happy 30, 40 years ago. So it's very different. And I think the same thing, again, I like to always look at the parallels between us and advisors. Advisors 30, 40 years ago didn't have to deliver what they deliver today to be successful. And I think we've talked at times about our fees going up or down, um, all these different factors. And I think the answer is there are going to be less advisors in the industry. Those advisors are going to be the most successful ones. And the ones that really have a value proposition and do a lot for their clients, their fees are actually trending upward. But the 75% of people that haven't increased their and improved their value proposition, they're starting to get a left behind a little bit, just like the smaller broker-dealers who they can still process your commissions and they can still be nice to you, but they don't have so many things that are now considered normal. I, I encourage advisors to look into what their best skills are and what, what the industry may look like in 10 years and in, just make sure that they've got a very strong value proposition and then they can continue to charge accordingly. They may even be able to increase their fees versus some that are going to get left behind because they're still doing it they're not doing it the same way as they did 20, 30 years ago, but they haven't kept up. And so we're here to try to help people keep up. Certainly bringing in some younger advisors to a team can really help that, although they can be annoying, I'm sure, to those of us that aren't used to all the things that they think are normal. So I encourage, um, I, I want to see Cambridge keep on moving the needle and staying ahead and uh, yet not forgetting the core of treating people incredibly well. And I encourage advisors to run a parallel track. And then in that case, the future is very bright for everyone. Couldn't have said it better myself. The future is bright. So stronger when united, if COVID gave us anything significantly positive, it was maybe the opportunity to take a step back and refresh and renew some of our mantras that we've known in our heart. What is the old saying? Takes a village. We are stronger when united, and you are and will continue to be our visionary, even if some days you don't want to accept that title. I think it's yours forever. So thanks for sharing yourself and your vision with us, and thank you for joining us today, Eric. 
Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at CambridgeStronger.com. That's CambridgeStronger.com. We are Cambridge Stronger.